All right, welcome back. Episode number six of the White Oak Collective podcast. I'm back in the studio with Austin today, uh, back from my hunting trip. So glad to be back and uh, got a pretty awesome podcast today, I think. Uh, we got Mr. Anthony Ballard from MDWFP. The um, he's the he's Would you be the head biologist with the Black Bear program or... So the technical term is program leader at the okay. moment. Okay, yeah. program leader. So if you want to just kind of start out, just kind of tell us who you are, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, yeah, Anthony Ballard. I'm the Black Bear program leader as of, uh, let's see, February of this year. Um, before that, I was the nuisance species biologist and started with the agency in 2015. Went to MSU and got my bachelor's there, bachelor of science, wildlife fisheries, and then got my master's from UL Monroe. And spend a little bit of time and going back and forth from Baton Rouge to Monroe, doing graduate stuff and, and a little work experience there, and then came back home in 2015 and started with the agency. So, what does the nuisance species biologist do? So, back when that's that uh, position was formed, um, our our alligator coordinator was doing alligator stuff, fur bears, and nuisance species, and so there was enough work there particularly with wild hogs which are a nuisance species to kind of branch off and create its own position and so me with the the wild hog work that i had done with my graduate work and then with the louisiana wildlife and fisheries kind of prepared me for that role and it, it was one of those where i was getting out of school they were looking for that position and i kind of moved into it and so most of that was anything from uh, disease work um you know, public education about wild hogs, you know, active management on our WMAs, uh, kind of, you know, advising on that, and just a, a lot of different things kind of wore a lot of hats, but it was all kind of in in that realm of mostly wild hogs and some other permitting and stuff like that. Yeah, so I guess it's, I mean, sounds like a bunch of different um, species, but really it's just a hog program almost is what it sounds like. Yeah, well, there are multiple species. So in the state of Mississippi, there's red and gray fox, uh, skunk, beaver, nutria, coyote, and wild hogs. And so there are those are all the ones that are classified as nuisance species. But like I said, far and away, the most work that was needed and, mm-hmm. and kind of what commanded the most time was wild hogs. Yeah, I wouldn't sure. think about the fox being a nuisance species. What is, yeah, really kind of the things that were under the... It's almost like the stuff that's under the fur bear program almost, or, or the things that are classified as fur bears almost fall into that. Yeah, and, and it's it kind of gets, there's some overlap there for that's sure. Uh, raccoon uh, is another one that's, yep. you know, a game species, but then it's also a class, nice. you know, it's also a fur bear. And so, um, so yeah, it's exactly how those get put on there are, or with our commission that basically make those, those rules of what right. goes on it and what doesn't, but... Uh, as far as how each one got put on and what the rationale for that, I really mm-hmm. couldn't. I got yeah. a question kind of about, I guess, most people when they think of uh, Department of Wildlife, they're probably thinking conservation officers they see out in the field the most. And then they hear about, like, studies and research stuff that are going on. How do you all interact? With, like, how do, how's that kind of lay out between uh, the biologists? Like, what are, I guess, the question I'm trying to ask is kind of like through the department, what are kind of your branches that – who's doing what within those branches right well essentially we have uh it's all wildlife fisheries and parks so we have our parks department they do you know state parks they maintain that and and do the advertising and upkeep and all that kind of stuff you have fisheries which that's pretty self-explanatory you have the wildlife bureau and then you have enforcement and back in the you know late 2000s uh excuse me early 90s and early 2000s um 
Did I say late nineties? Late nineties, yeah. early two thousands. So right around right. right around that time, there was sort of a, a split where a, before that time there were a lot of what we call now hybrids, which were wildlife people that had you know trained, had wildlife degrees, but they were also sworn law enforcement, gotcha. and that's why still you know we have people co- that that confuse our wildlife guys with game wardens because right. and it, it's it's pretty well founded because they used to be one and the same right well that's what I, that's why i was wanting to go into the question because i was like okay this is probably a good opportunity to kind of explain that difference yeah yeah and the, a good way to kind of explain it would be uh the wildlife bureau makes the recommendations on what the regulations should be on on our wmas and then on mm-hmm. statewide game regulations and then the law the law enforcement mm-hmm. officers are the ones that actually enforce those regulations once they're passed and and voted on and and uh, put into law. Perfect. All right. Was that about the same time when it was game and fish? Was that kind of whenever it changed from game and fish to Department of Wildlife, or was that before that? I couldn't tell you exactly. Okay. Uh, it was That's probably fair. pretty close that time, okay. but I'm not. I'm not super sure. So just kind of getting back of what we're planning on talking about today. So we, me and him, were both kind of looking at the bear week, like I was telling you before we started, and just were like, man, this is interesting. Because I mean, just always see bears, and I've had some buddies that have had them on game cameras and stuff. And so, you know, they're around, but getting, seeing all that information, I was like, yep, people would love to hear about this. So yeah, I was looking at my phone that morning, like looking at the post from bear week. And I was thinking, like, man, this would be cool. Maybe one day, maybe this is something we need to put on the calendar. Maybe we can do this, catch this next year or something. I walked in the door and I was like, man, we don't, or one of us mentioned something about it, but I was like, Hey, guess who's coming in? Yeah, that's (laughs) awesome. So man, and that got a huge response. Um, people really loved it. I, I was, Telling Bo before you came in that that's probably I, I hadn't looked at the stats, but I would imagine that's probably head and shoulders above anything else we've put really? out as far as social media. And, and the thing about it is, you know, I'm pretty new to this position, so all, a lot of that stuff. I mean, the groundwork's been laid. Uh, MDWFP has been doing bear work since 2002, and you know, same den checks, same type of uh, telemetry work. Of course, the collars, you know, technology is advanced and stuff, but that same type of research has been done for two decades now. Um, but there really wasn't a, a, you know, the social media obviously hadn't come as far right, as it is right. now. And to kind of tell that story and put that stuff out there to people that really, you know, it was mostly just people in the department and, and other researchers, you know, MSU and stuff that knew about that stuff. So to take all of that and put it out to the public and say, Hey, you know, we're working on this stuff. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's our goals. Here's some fun facts about it. And, and man, people just loved it. It was a great response. Yeah, and I know, I guess you got to kind of be careful with that stuff because, like, I know nationally the black bear is kind of a controversial deal as far as, you know, you've got the people that are want to see it protected in every state and, you know, don't touch the black bears. And then you've got the people that in huntable states that like to hunt them and stuff like that. And um, I guess you've kind of got to toe the line on being careful with how you do that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's that's something that I've really tried to keep in mind you know, from, from the start of, uh, when I've kind of taken this over is, you know, it's not exactly what you say, but it's also how you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to not, not portray them as a, a warm and fuzzy, you know, cuddly <laughs> yeah. teddy bear, right. mm-hmm. but at the same time also don't portray them as a, a scary monster that wants to eat your kids. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, towing that line as, you know, they're a wild animal, they deserve respect just like any others. Yes, they can be a nuisance, but, you know, ask a farmer in the Delta if, if deer can be a nuisance. Mm-hmm. You know, ask 
Uh, ask anybody that's that's dealt with wild hogs if they. Yeah, can I was about to say yeah. that, turkeys yeah. out west. I mean, yeah, basically um, everything can find its way into a nuisance category somewhere. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so, and like you said, kind of towing that line, and and you know, putting out the information that we want people to know, uh, the objectives that we are trying to accomplish, and you know, that was one of the things that I thought about a lot. Looking at the statistics after the fact, we reached over half a million people with those with, with Bear Week with That's those awesome. posts all together. Yeah. And so, you know, looking at that, it really sank in. Like we just talked to a lot of people, and mm-hmm. you know, going over that in my mind, like, did we say the right things? Did mm-hmm. did people take from that what what I, what we were trying to portray? Um, and so, you know, I think it was, but you know, time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely was just from the post I saw and just. Talking about the work y'all have done and all that, I mean, it all looked it looked good to me. But yeah, I, he, gave me, he gave me a lot of questions. That's whatever he was. Whenever he said we were putting this together, it's like perfect. I got a thousand questions. So, so kind of going back, like our whole life, bears have been endangered. I mean, there's hardly been any bears. It seems like for or when we were kids, um, kind of go back because I know back in the day, you know, 1800s, and so there was tons of bears around here. So right. kind of go back and talk about, I guess, like how many bears or estimates of how many bears were actually around here. And then maybe I think, you know, I think most people kind of know what led to the decline of bears, but if you just kind of want to go into that a little bit. Yeah. So it's a pretty familiar story. There's a lot of game species that we kind of take for granted now that, that followed that same path, you know, right around the turn of the century, the 1900s. And there were basically two main factors for that, for all of those species. And one was habitat destruction and the other was, um, was over hunting, so market hunting, uh, and that's that's kind of how um, the the beginning of the North American model of conservation came to be. Was you know the guys back there back then looked at this and said, "Hey, something's got to change. We we can't hunt all these these creatures into you know into extinction. We're about to lose them all, and did lose some uh, before the the tide was kind of changed and kind of righted the ship a little bit. So. Bears were in the same situation as many other game species at the time, you know, around the turn of the century. And you had, um, you know, the, the famous teddy bear hunt, the, the, the Teddy Roosevelt hunt. He came down. That was that was in 1902. And so it was right about that time or, or you know, shortly thereafter where um, the agency was formed in 1932. And uh, there were some – that was when they got state protection – uh, and then there were some uh, restocking efforts in, I think, 34 and 35. Um, it was just a handful of bears. It wasn't successful. And so a lot of the bears, you know, people say, well, you restock bears and you're moving bears. We really haven't done any of that except for that one time in the almost 100 years ago. And uh, so the the population, you know, the trajectory that we've seen in the growth has, has followed the other game species, but they have such a slower reproduction rate and – a little bit more habitat um, requirements, and so that that's been a lot slower than a lot of other game species we've seen. So I guess, like, is there any thought as to the reasoning on why the restocking didn't work, and why, like, why hadn't that been tried again? Um, as far as why it hadn't been tried again, I I really couldn't tell you that, and you know. Sometimes restocking efforts work. Uh, there's a lot of factors there. You've got to factor in genetics, you know, what those bears are used to, where they came from, what kind of habitat they were put into. Um, and, and so it was probably a combination of some of that. I really couldn't – I hadn't looked into exactly why. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at things like the white-tailed deer. You know, they took 
um, deer from, I think, Wisconsin, Mexico, um, several other neighboring states, uh, Texas, I think, and, you know, brought them in for restocking efforts. And, I mean, the, the genetic research after that has shown that some of those genetic, ver- uh, genetic um, I guess, from, from, from different origins, some did much better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I said, it was probably a product of where they came from and how well they did in their new environment. So I would imagine it would be something along those lines. But it's been a pretty steady recolonizing from Louisiana, Arkansas, maybe a little bit out of Alabama Mobile Basin. Is that kind of where we're looking at stuff coming from? Yeah. Um, so Tinsall National Wildlife Refuge right there across the river in, in Tennessee, oh, excuse me, in Louisiana. And then you have the White River region in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. That Those are two really big populations, very dense, probably some of the densest in the southeast. And so those populations, as they grow and expand, is you know, sort of a natural expansion out. Right. Um, you know, when a bear crosses the river into Mississippi, a lot of times they don't go back. Yeah. And that's where most of our breeding population came from was one of those two places. So we've got kind of, you know, pretty dense populations up around Bolivar County, which, you know, is directly across that White River region right. and then over in the kind of the South Delta. And then uh, the Alabama population is a little <laughs> bit, uh, I guess, newer on the timeline, but it is also growing and we're getting a lot of a lot of transplants from Alabama as well. But again, that's all natural dispersal. Yeah, I guess thinking about it, it's like there's really nowhere else, at least that I can think of in the United States, that's got the, that's like the River Delta. I mean, so you got to be, you know, the only other place besides Mississippi that those bears would be used to that would be right across the river in Louisiana and Arkansas. So talking about, you know, what they're used to trying to restock them, there's really nowhere that you could bring bears in where they'd be used to places like the Mississippi Delta unless they're from just across the river and they you know they'll do that naturally so yeah and you got to think i mean you know the the way the delta looked back in the you know early 1900s mm-hmm. is completely different from what it looks like now you know you had old growth timber and uh you know denning habitat is one of those things that um is a requirement for bears so you had you know just walking through some of that bottom on hardwood still those old cedar tree uh, i keep saying cedar <laughs> the old cypress trees um you know, we'll have big hollow spots in them that are just perfect for getting up in and, and denning. And, you know, there's other parts of the state where you don't see that type. You, you see them in, you know, maybe rotten log or in um, in the biggest hairy briar thicket you've ever seen. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, on one hand, you have a lot of habitat requirements, but on the other, they're also very adaptable. And so they can they can make a living in, in places where it's not maybe completely ideal, but, you know, they, they can still thrive there. Is denning habitat like the most restrictive factor on what their expansion is right now? I mean, is that I guess of the things that they're looking for to expand? Is that kind of what the limiting factor is? Yeah, historically, that's been one of them for sure. Okay. Yeah, I guess I guess you could kind of go ahead and go into like what are the requirements, you know, for uh, for a successful bear population? I mean, what does you know what does a bear need around here? So a lot of people don't think of this as far as diet goes. Uh, you have about 80 to 90 percent, depending on what statistics or what, what studies you're reading of, um, of plant matter. And so, you know, white-tailed deer, for instance, you have different seasons where you have what they call pulse resources. So all of a sudden something's available and it's available in abundance. Mm-hmm. So that may be acorns in the fall. That's, that's the one that we are most, you know, uh, familiar with thinking about. 
Uh, you have berry production in a lot of other places, you know, especially up north. You have the blueberries and stuff where they, they really down here it would probably be more like blackberries and elderberries and that kind of thing. Um, so you have your, your, your plant resources. And then, like I said, you do need those, that denning habitat as well. Uh, but the good thing is they, uh, you know, we worked up one this year that was in a, a slash pile that was man-made, you know, that has been clear cut, mm-hmm, right. everything piled up and, and the sow had excavated that area. It was an awesome den. Uh, you kind of go down into it and it was like this, this little nice hole down in the bottom. So, um, you know, that they can, you, they can utilize a lot of things, but, you know, like I said, the, the, um, those food resources, obviously, especially when they're going into the fall, because that's when they're trying to pack on those pounds and really build that fat layer to where they can survive the winter. Right. Uh, particularly cubs, that, uh, excuse me, uh, sows that are going to have cubs. That's a big nutritional strain. And so, um, with, with the, um, increased commonality of feeders, you know, that's, that's I was going to ask about become a little bit more readily available. Mm, those, those yeah. free calories. That um, was something I had on here since you mentioned, it, I, I guess I go on and ask how, when talking about that with the feeders and all, I mean, obviously I guess it would be something in low food source areas that they're going to tap into, but also in places like when you see bears make the news, it's usually cause they're in somebody's trash or bird feeders or something like that right. or is like the legal baiting of deer and deer feeders been around everywhere is that going to kind of be an issue with the bear as they as they come back is that something you're seeing already in in places that there are residential bears yeah uh, not residential but um that have an established bear population not just transients right well and and you know that kind of goes back to the the quote-unquote nuisance bear talk i guess and, you know, the, the thing that we try to preach is, you know, make sure that you're eliminating those food sources that are in and around your home, first and foremost. So things that can be just as simple as taking your garbage out the day of versus the night before. You know, most of us do it the night before. Right. Usually I forget and take it out the morning <laughs> of. But, uh, you know, things like bird feeders. Um, I was in Colorado one time um, catching rainbow trout, and I saw this big cinnamon black bear came up on this lady's porch and uh, heard her yell, which is the reason I knew he was over there. And he went around that front porch one at a time, pulled pulled down our humming feeder, hummingbird feeders, you know, licking all the juice he could and going to the next one. He just and knew so, where they were. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, bears have an incredibly good sense of smell. And so anything that's going to put out smell, you know, pet food, if it's not put up, garbage. And it's not something that people really think about doing. It's not adjustments that we're used to making because there's a lot of people that haven't ever lived with bears in that that proximity. Right. Uh, You take somebody out West and it's just something that you do because they're so used to dealing with it. And, um, you know, or somebody even as close as the smoky mountains, it happens all the time. And so you see bear proof trash cans all over the place and you, it's just a a common thing because the kind of society as a whole has made that adjustment. And so, um, you know, it's, if you had the opportunity for free, convenient food, there there are wild animals that are trying to utilize that resource, and so it's not convenient. It can be uh, an issue, but you know, at the at the end of the day, you, we're all going to have to make that adjustment. Right. And I assume they'll they'll probably eat out of a corn feeder just like any other animal. I mean, do they do they like corn just like it seems like everything does? Absolutely. Also, yeah, I, I guess that was um, what I was going to get at. Was that was that like? gonna help habitualize them to looking for stuff like that yeah and it's actually so the male bears specifically don't den as long or as as often as the females do most of the time and so uh, if you see them out a lot of times they'll be out ranging and if you have a huge you know 100 or 500 um, pound 
you know, pocket of free protein right, right. there. Well, not, not necessarily protein, Carbs. carbohydrates yeah. for sure. Um, you know, they're going to utilize that yeah. and when, it's, when it's easy enough to get into, you know, a hundred dollar Walmart feeder, nothing against them, but they're not hard for a bear to get right. into. And so they're going to definitely utilize that resource. And, and actually, you know, I don't know if this is, this is backed up by a specific study, but kind of an observation that people have made is they'll see bears more during the winter because why hibernate when you can actually go out and, and continue to build have that, that fat layer yeah, yeah, and have that free, that free meal. So, um, it's, it's, it's changing a lot of things as far as behavior of wildlife as a whole. I was wondering about hibernation. I mean, cause when it doesn't ever really get cold down here, I mean, you know, maybe a week. So how does, how does that actually work down here? I mean, do they truly hibernate or? So when people think of the word hibernation, they typically think of an animal that goes into a, a burrow or den or whatever. It goes to sleep for the duration of the winter, and then it wakes up in the spring. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we see our bears down here do. Uh, a more accurate description would be carnivore and lethargy or torpor, uh, which refers to sort of a, a sleep that's not as deep. Uh, there's not as much temperature and respiration suppression, uh, whereas like, you know, there's certain rodents and stuff where you've got like one one heartbeat per minute, one respiration per several minutes, um, not you know brain activity that's not even detectable. That kind, of, I'm talking about an absolute deep sleep, mm-hmm. and um, you know we've yet to walk up on a black bear in a den that didn't know we were there. They're they're still very alert, they're very awake, maybe a little bit more lethargic in you know, those nasty cold you know rainy type weather. But it's really less of a weather thing and more of a an adaptation to to deal with um, just food scarcity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you when you reduce the the energy it takes to to power your body, then you're going to be able to rely on those fat reserves for longer. And so, it just makes them more efficient. Right. Um, you know, to to run the machine, so to speak, you turn all the settings down yeah. to lower, uh, so you you burn less la- less battery. You know, would be a good. A good way to put it. Well, I, guess. I was going to ask if it was like daylight driven, but I think you just kind of answered it with saying it was more food driven. Yeah, and I mean you'll see. Well, and and with pregnant females, it's reproductive driven. You know, they're um, so bears do what's called delayed implantation. I may be skipping ahead a little bit. No, but, go ahead. That's fine. Um, we can circle around as many times as you want. Yeah. So so a bear, a female bear, is going to breed um, right around June or July. Usually, peak peak breeding in Mississippi is right around July, and so they they display what's called uh, delayed implantation. So she breeds then, typically with other mammals. They breed, the egg implants to the uterus, it begins to develop, and then you know that development occurs over a certain time, and then they give birth. What bears do is they'll breed, have that fertilized egg, but implantation doesn't occur until about January. So they don't actually start to grow until then. So it allows them to do two things. Number one, it allows them to not have that nutritional drain of growing a, a, a offspring, uh, it, it offsets that until they've built up all that fat in their system. Um, and then it also allows them to find a den right. and to go into that den to be able to, to sustain that pregnancy and then to have those cubs inside the den rather than, you know, having them somewhere and, and not be in that, in that winter time period like that. So, you know, it allows them to, to deal with the scarcity of food, but then also time everything just right to where those nutri- when the nutritional resources are the highest, the fat reserves are the highest as well. Yeah. And so it's it's really amazing how they do that. That is pretty neat. I didn't realize that it was like a delayed implantation like that. Mm-hmm. How long is there just 
I guess, would you consider that the gestation period? Or once it implants, how long does it take for them to go from implantation to giving birth? Yeah, so implantation is, like I said, usually sometime in January, yeah. and then they'll actually give birth um, late February to, yeah, late mid to late February. Usually. That's a lot Eight quicker weeks, than I sir. thought. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I was yes. thinking, for some reason, I was thinking like months. It seems like an animal like that would be months but so it's quick. yeah so we do our den checks in early march uh this year it was from like the first to the 15th i had to go out of town on the 15th but um those those two weeks right there and as we were finding those uh, those those dens you know we would hear the cubs and then t- we, you try to hit it right in that time where they're about five you know four to five weeks old something like that to where they're big enough where they uh you're not going to have to worry about things like hypothermia right uh, but they're still small enough where they're pretty easy to handle and, and work up like we need to that's crazy that it's that fast yeah they're they're about six to well about yeah six to eight ounces when they're born pretty small tiny yep mm-hmm. so yeah i guess go let's go ahead and kind of talk about um we'll get into kind of the bear program and and what y'all are doing but you can go ahead and kind of talk about y'all's den checks and what y'all are doing what y'all are trying to accomplish with that and um just a little bit more about that yeah what we try to do with with bear week kind of going back to that was you know put out a a picture or video or some you know some fun catchy um deal that would kind of pull the reader in and then you know try to give a descriptive descriptive but not overly scientific description of what it was we were doing you know so Here's a picture of a baby bear, but let's also tell you about den checks, the importance of them, the reproductive data that we're trying to get, uh, things like that. And so uh, den checks is probably one of the most important things that we do as far as research on bears because we can obviously look at reproduction, and um, those are on our collared bears. And so typically we're only going to do den checks on the bears that we have collared. Otherwise, it's you know a needle in a haystack. You, right. you would never find mm-hmm. one. Um, and so what – kind of the the step-by-step process is first you have to find the bears most of the time that's you can get in the ballpark with the gps um that, that's on the collars and but sometimes those aren't exactly accurate and so what you have to do is they also emit a vhf frequency so when you turn on the radio you turn on to 102.7 that's a frequency that's mm-hmm. 102.7 megahertz and so each of these collars have their own frequency also so what we'll do is we'll dial in that frequency and then we use a directional antenna right. and essentially play the hot and cold game through the woods <laughs> looking for a bear um, until we find that den. Uh, we flag it, make sure that we know where it is. Uh, if we can figure out if cubs are in there or not, we'll do that. And then, um, you know, figure out what, what where our approach is going to be going into the den and then come back again during that first part of March and actually dart the female will sedate her if she needs any adjustments on her collar kind of general health make a, a workup and then we'll take the cubs we mark them with a um a basically implanted microchip it's called a pit tag same thing they put in um dogs and cats mm-hmm. you know at the, at the vet where basically it's a, a scannable barcode so we can identify that cub anytime in the future after we you know let's say we call it again 10 years later we're going to scan it, and we're going to figure out that that cub was born on this time and day and, um, and and be able to kind of connect those dots. And so you can look at long-term, you know, survivability, um, reproductive uh, averages and that kind of thing, you know, how many are, are bears having on average, how many are making it to adulthood, 
And once you get enough of that data over the years, you can really start to connect the dots and put together what your overall population looks like, what your success is, you know, your mm-hmm. reproductive success and that kind of stuff. So how many cubs would you say y'all are putting those tags in every year? All of them we can all of them we can find, all the way we can put our hands on. So uh, this year it happened to be, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six total. Six. Yeah, and that was three females. One female had one, one had two, and one had three. And, what is uh, is that – what would be the average that a female would have? So if I didn't know anything about the cu- the, the sow mm-hmm. and I, I went in and she had cubs, I would expect her to have, you know, one to three. That's That's the average. Uh, we did have one this year that someone had just happened upon that had four. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to to catch back up with her. She had moved, and um, anyway, there was some some problems there with being able to find her again and timing issues and stuff. But uh, typically, you know, one to three. Um, Brad Young, who was our our bear biologist, he was here from about two thousand two till I think twelve, and he he said the most that he saw you know during his his time working with us was five and okay. i think there's i think he saw like maybe two with five so you know one is meh you know two to three is about average four is above average and then five is almost unheard of yeah. what is survivability like for those i mean what, what are they actually raising to maturity um most of them or eh, no not most of them um it's i think right around 40 percent is is what i read now as far as our specific bears I would have to, you know, look into the data yeah. and see what our what our statistics look um, look like. But okay. um, you've got, of course, vehicle collisions is a big one. Uh, you actually have other bears; that's a pretty big one too. So if a male comes across cubs that aren't his, a lot of times he's going to kill them. Yeah. And um, and then the delta where you have unpredictable water levels and stuff. If it's too early in the um, in the kind of you know, that rearing process when she's in her den, if she's built a ground den and you have some sudden flooding, then you can have some mortality from that. Um, abandonment is, is something that happens every now and then. So it's, um, you know, if you get to, to half, then you would really, really be doing good. So talking about the little little pipes out there, but uh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't high school great. <laughs> yes, it was. But going back to talking about the um male bears you know eating eating young that aren't theirs in the breeding populations um do you typically have just kind of one dominant bear that's doing most of the breeding or how does how's that work yeah one bear can breed multiple females um a male's home range is going to be a lot larger than a female's and so he could have multiple females in that home range and then once those cubs get to maturity so bears only breed every other year and so she's going to breed. Let's say she. Let's say that one of the bears we worked up this year. Uh, let's say she had a couple cubs. So assuming those make it to adulthood, they're going to den usually again with her, uh, or, or at least somewhere close to her um, in this coming up winter. And then next spring, they'll both come out. They'll kind of hang with each other. And then at some point between the spring and the summer, when she breeds again she'll kick them out and they'll go do their own thing. And so, you know, if it's, they may end up fairly close by if it's not a very dense population or if it's a place that has a much denser population, you know, they could, they could go miles and miles Mm -hmm. until they finally find a place to, to establish their own home Mm -hmm. range. And I guess it may be, I mean, is it kind of similar in a sense where you've got, you know, they say that like spikes in the deer population, they'll travel 
you know, a ways away just to make sure that there's no inbreeding going on in the small populations. And I mean, it's kind of similar to that with bears or. Yeah, it's sort of similar. And it's, it's not necessarily to, to avoid inbreeding. Like, you know, obviously they don't really know that, but mm-hmm. that's one of those things that that's kind of taken care of in the way they naturally disperse mm-hmm. because that dispersal away from the, those similar genetics are going to naturally bring you into a, a place where the genetics are not as similar mm-hmm. and, and, you know, sort of that geographical gap there is going to, is going to help avoid a lot of that. Gotcha. When you said they breed every other year, like, are they nursing through that first year? Is there something that's like calls it? Is there like, I guess, is it cub rearing? That's because they stay with them for like 18 months or something. Don't they? Somewhere yeah, like eight, that. 18 months. I'm not exactly sure about the, the weaning when exactly that happens okay. in the process. I was wondering if it was like when they came out of the den or if they like if if once they came out and got to moving around if they were kind of done or yeah well they're going to be weaned before they go into the the den the next the, like yeah the, bef- the following right cycle. until they go yeah. into the second denning cycle but um yeah as far as and, and you got to remember too bears are going to be a female is typically going to be three to five years old before she breeds for the first time and so. Those are very much, um, you know, juvenile bears right. until that. And then even, you know, you wouldn't really call a bear a quote-unquote adult until right about that four- or five-year mark. And so it's a pretty slow-growing glo- slow uh, animal and slow-reproducing animal compared to something like a white-tailed deer where in a super good population, a lot of, um, you know, nutrition and, and body development, you could have a fawn that breeds, you know, the first year. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's not super common, but it can happen. And so, you know, it's people compare them to, to deer and, you know, we're kind of used to kind of putting animal, putting mammals in the same, uh, bu- the same boat as far as breeding goes. And there's actually, it can be some pretty stark differences. Yeah. I guess that's probably one of the, I mean, that's gotta be one of the biggest hurdles as far as population growth is just that it's such a long process. I mean, you know, even you know, right now, if we're talking about what the population is that we've got, what, and what is the estimate on the Mississippi population? So that's far and away the most popular question that I get asked. <laughs> Everybody wants mm-hmm. to know that. Um, the truth is, we've you know we have some estimates that have been formulated in the past, but to be really honest, they're outdated. Like we, you know, state reports and stuff like that that I've looked through, it's like 150 to 300 bears. Uh, it was estimated at 50. Um, I'm trying to know what that year was. It was can't remember the, the year how about but how about this okay because i was i was going to ask you this like three times earlier and never wanted to interject how many collared bears do y'all have right now so right now we have eight eight okay. uh we have six that are gps and then we have two that are vhf only okay. so the two that are vhf we actually have to go out and and have a pretty good idea of where they are to find them uh the other six are are sending me gps data on my on my computer every day uh so since um, March the 1st, they began sending that data four times every day, uh, every six hours. And so I can keep a pretty good tab on those bears. So going back to putting the tags in the cubs, is six kind of an average? You said y'all did six this year. Would that kind of be an average of every year? How many y'all get to put tags in? Well, the, so the new collars that I have just came in um, last week. And so we got 10 more brand new ones that were planned to put out and then two more that came off of other bears that still have enough battery that they can be put out. So we've mm-hmm. got a total of 12 right now that we're planning on putting out over the spring and summer. And so we, this whole process we've worked with um, Mississippi state university 
and you know they're doing research on on this and you know grad students have been working with with me to to get those collars out um also had i mentioned brad young he actually came back over this past summer um, before i'd come into this position and helped with the trapping and and getting those collars out all that being said we hope to have more than twice the collared bears this time or you know uh winter and fall of next year as we did in 2022 yeah when you say collared bears like that's not including the um little tag that you were talking about putting tags on are for recapture right like, so you can when right. you recapture you'll identify them the collars are going to be for new ad- or adults that or you're trying to tra- yeah yeah that's right so uh yeah so the pit tags are they're not electric well they're not battery power they don't emit anything okay um, yeah so you've got to catch them it's a passive thing yeah yeah so it's kind of like it's a lot like putting a tag in, but it's a tag that's under the skin, so mm-hmm. it's not going to fall out. It's like yeah. the same um, thing you do with your pets or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the first things that we do when we capture a bear and we don't know for sure which one it is, like it's not marked, it's not collared, the first thing that we'll do is is scan for a pit tag because sometimes you know collars get torn out of ears or mm-hmm. whatever the case is, and you don't necessarily know which bear that is, but then you scan that pit tag and the number comes up mm-hmm. and then you know exactly the history of it. So or at least right then and there you know whether you've caught it or not before yeah that's that's pretty cool so as far as like what are kind of i mean i you know i somewhat understand the objectives behind collar and the bears but just kind of the long-term plans for that or goals for collar and bears i mean what would, would you say well so first of all like i said this you know i'm i'm pretty new into this program um but there's there, you know, Richard Rummel and Brad Young mm. before myself have both had about a decade worth of experience doing this. And so, I mean, the, the groundwork has been laid as far as the data that's been collected and the research has been done. But sort of the overall effort of this is, you know, like I said before, bears were an important game species in Mississippi and the entire southeast uh, before such populations declines. And so, you know, the, the, the goal right now is to, number one, figure out how many we have. Uh, number two, to um, not necessarily facilitate population growth, but uh, not to inhibit it and just to, to track it as it goes along. And then, you know, like I said, we our hope is that we have enough bears at one point where we say, hey, we have a sustainable population right now. Uh, bears are, have been an important game species in, Mississippi, species in Mississippi historically, and we hope to return that, um, you know, to, to be in a reality, you know, sometime in the future. Yeah, that was my biggest question that I was going to get to that in a little bit, but I want to go ahead and talk about it now. Like, I was looking earlier at uh, the zones in Arkansas where they have bear hunting. And, I mean, it's just literally across the river. They have, I think one of them had a quota of 10, one was 5, one was maybe 25 or something like that. Um, What are the – and you may not even could answer this, but, like, what are the odds that we see a – bear hunt in the net you know a bear season in mississippi in the next say 10 years or um like what what would have to happen to make that a reality so i'll kind of take that and and parallel it with the american alligator because that's probably the most comparable species Mm -hmm. as of right now um so what happened there is you know you with the alligator you did have some some restocking efforts as i understand it but um uh, ricky flint who's recently retired uh, one of the big things, one of his responsibilities during the summer and, and a lot of our staff was to do um, 
to do surveys, alligator surveys on certain waterways throughout the state. And that was to just keep an inventory, make sure that, that everything looked good with the populations and, and to do those year, those surveys one year after the other. And that's not to get an exact number, but just to look at a trend line. And so, you know, I think the, the Ross Barnett Reservoir and maybe a section of the Pearl River was the very first uh, zone, quote-unquote, that was open for alligator hunting. I think there were like 50 issue, uh, mm-hmm. permits issued. And, you know, it was very small and controlled. And, and that's what we've seen in, in a lot of bear seasons in, um, in other parts of the state. You mentioned, or excuse me, other parts of the country. So you mentioned uh, Arkansas. They just opened a new season, I think, in southeast or southwest. I forget. But there was there was one zone this year that was the first time it had been opened was this season. And, again, that's a result of um, the bear biologist in, in Arkansas taking inventory of that population and saying, you know what, this area right here is, is an area that could sustain harvest. We want to open that up to hunters and, and you know, um, issue a certain amount of permits. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the formula. I would imagine it's going to be pretty similar here, you know, when that time comes. It's obviously not going to be statewide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be in certain zones that can sustain that harvest. And then, um, you know, as far as how many that will look like and, and, and all that, who knows. But mm-hmm. um, the good thing is, you know, a lot of times when states start to look at that, uh, implementing that possibility, other states, especially ones that are close by, are, are a good template for kind of, you know, even talking to those guys, you know, what worked and what didn't. What would you do differently over again? How would you go about putting these these uh, things in? So you, you have differences between states, but you also have a lot of similarities. And so, you know, all that will come into play you know, one day. Yeah, and I guess when you start issuing, when you get to the point where you can issue even one or two um, tags on bears, I mean, because, you know, like the elk in some of our eastern states, I mean, some of those fetch all kind of money that goes back to research. So I guess, I mean – there's no telling, you know, what you could probably get for a bear tag, you know, if you issued one in the state right now, what somebody be willing to pay for, and then you just seem like you could put that back into research that would just continue to help it expand and expand. Yeah, you could. Um, you could do it that way, and I, I know, you know, in some some popular, like isolated, like I think um, maybe some mountain goats or doll sheep, something mm-hmm. like that, that have like a really limited, you know, um, some African species come to mind, like, rhinos and that kind of mm-hmm. thing it's like we're issuing one tag for you know however many thousands of dollars um that's really not something that that i don't think we're terribly interested in so it didn't really fit the way we've done stuff in the past yeah year. and and i mean what have you really accomplished yeah. you know um what we want to do is is have that population to where you know obviously it can't be terribly widespread but it would at least you know, afford enough people to actually be worth doing it. Right. Uh, Cause it's going to be a pretty big lift to try to get all that together and, and form what's eventually going to be that season. So, you know, it, it would, it would be a lot more beneficial to have, you know, to follow the model that, you know, States like Arkansas have done, you know, and, and uh, to where you have a zone and you have a certain amount of tags that you're issuing in that. So how do you have any idea like how, Big, do you? I mean, like, because Arkansas, I did see they had a couple of zones on the river that were real small. It was like a five A, five B, and they looked super small. Like, if we got a season in the Delta, I mean, I know it would be over in the Delta. So, how big or small would you think that that hunt could actually take place in? Well, and I, I kind of hate 
to keep going back so to, far away. So. Well, I, I hate to keep going back to the research, but that's why it's so important uh, mm-hmm. because that's, you know, that's what you're trying to establish because every state's going to be different every region. Um, but really you're looking at, you know, chunks of suitable habitat and then, you know, what the density of bears are in that habitat. And right now we don't even, we don't even know what those densities are. Yeah. Uh, we do know that there are camps over there that don't even bother reporting bears anymore. They see them almost every day. It's just a common occurrence, you know? And so, um, it, there are definitely some places, even small pockets that have very dense populations and some not as much. And so it's just going to be a work in progress to figure out how that looks on the landscape and then, you know, where to draw the lines essentially. Yeah. And talking about those camps, I'm sure there's some that, you know, they, they're land in Arkansas and land in Mississippi. There's probably some that are in there that have a bear season on their Arkansas side, but no bear season on their Mississippi side, and it's the exact same bears. It's just an imaginary line that goes through there. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I, I told you I had two extra collars that came off of bears. One of those was one that we collared in uh, northwest Mississippi that found our way over in Arkansas and, and got killed legally by a hunter over there. So it, it's definitely uh, a possibility. Um, and, and we kind of, you know, in our brains, we look at Mississippi River as, as a dividing line, some kind of boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's absolutely not. You look at the right. deer, the deer data that that uh, MSU has done. You know there there are bucks that swim back and forth to Louisiana, Mississippi every year or multiple times a year. You know it's it's really. I think about that every time I, I drive by or drive over it, and you look at it, and you're like, "Good gosh, at the yeah. feet that would be to try to yeah try to swim across that for and, us." <laughs> and it's really what's amazing to me is you would think that they would enter it, and then it would be a considerable distance down river that they would actually get back to right. shore. It's really not. I mean, they swim uh, not straight across it, but you know, a pretty, pretty good angle. Where it's not it, dumping it's them almost a mile. Straight across. It's, not, it's not pushing the current's not pushing them way down. Yeah, yeah. A lot better swimmers than you would think. So it's, it's not as much of a, um, a boundary as you would think. <clears throat> when you were talking about your collared ones earlier and the two that you have with the frequencies, you get constant feedback on the GPS ones, but the frequency ones, they ever thrown you for a loop. Like, had to really go out and find them that showed up somewhere that were like way off from what you were expecting? Um, so one of the things I didn't mention, if we have, uh, we had a couple this year um, that we had very little idea where they were. I mean, we had a, a, a general idea, but not really. Uh, so what we did was schedule a flight and we have uh, directional antennas on the, on the struts of the wings. So we have one on the left and one on the right. And then inside, I've got a toggle that can either listen to both or isolate left and right. And so basically what you do is um, you, you, let's say that you, you pick up a signal and then you figure out whether it's on the left or right of the aircraft. And then you basically start to make concentric circles getting tighter and, and closer to the ground until you can pinpoint where that bear is, mark it on the map, and then you go in. Um, so I, we did that to a couple this year. Um, I think I missed the first one by about 400 yards and I missed the second one by about 200 yards. I actually saw a video um, of that on YouTube. I don't know if it was from this round or if it was like from a year or two ago or something, but there was a YouTube, I was looking at just like Mississippi bear videos on YouTube yeah. prior to this, just kind of getting the information and they were doing that on there. So if you, if you want to know what that looks like and all, you can kind of, there, there is a video out there that shows them flying and it has a toggle switch and yeah. how I've that works. i down the, down a toilet bowl, but I imagine it would feel It'd pretty be very similar. similar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's uh it's not for the motion sick. That's for sure. What is uh what's the farthest that y'all have had a collared bear go? Uh, that's one thing that I would have to, um, I would have to kind of look back in the data. Um, again, this, there's 
20 years worth of data mm-hmm. that I, that I've inherited. A lot of that stuff has gone into research and a lot of it's gone, you know, into, into papers and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and some of it is still in files on a computer. And so uh, I want to say there was one presentation I was looking back on and it was, I think over 300 miles total, like round yeah. trip. I mean, we've had one just recently that's been in the Delta that's, that's gone, I think as the crow flies, 25 30 miles from from where it was collared and but round trip it's been considerably more than that yeah. you know just in a few months so um there but, was a and i can't remember the exact details anymore y'all might know what i'm talking about but i remember a story about a bear this wasn't in mississippi but i think it was like was it the tennessee bear it, the one that got on like a the one that they just are guessing maybe got on a barge, yeah, on a barge or something like that was the oh, no, story that was popular. Circulating. It was like a thousand miles or something. They it think was somewhere it like upper Midwest, I think, where he was maybe originally collar or something like that. And then he like he got hit by a car in, like, somewhere. Yeah, they picked him up in Louisiana, and he got the next time they found him or something. He was like way down the river, and they found him maybe in Louisiana or. And I guess that's just their best. I think their best guess is that he maybe got stuck on a green probably, barge somehow. It was a couple of years ago whenever up. that story was circulating, if I remember right. Yep. Well, but there was uh, Tennessee, I think it's been in the last year or two, that so they were doing a, a collaring project where they were looking at relocated bears. And that's another thing that I kind of want to touch on. People say, why can't you relocate them? They're you know, like, they're getting my corn feeders. Just mm-hmm. don't y'all just, they're your bears. Just take them. <laughs> like, that's always the assumption. Like, <laughs> yeah. your bears coming in. It's like, I didn't put him there. Um, but anyway, that you know, why don't you relocate bears? And the answer to that is pretty, pretty well demonstrated by the story. Uh, so it was over in Tennessee and there was a bear on a campsite there at Smoky Mountain National Park, caught the bear, collared it, relocated it to, to, to um, Cherokee National Park over in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, 60, 70 miles, something like that. Let the bear go. And it covered four states and right around a thousand miles, obviously not in a straight line. Right. Um, and, and ended up back at the exact same campsite that they had, that they had caught it on the first time. Mm-hmm. So the first answer to that is because it doesn't work because if a bear wants to be back there, mm-hmm. then it, that's, that's where it's going to end up. But number two, you know, if there's a problem bear that's on a campsite, for instance, or in a neighborhood or something like that, um, and you move it, then you just moved a problem bear to somebody else's neighborhood or somebody else's campsite. Mm, yeah. And so, uh, and they also found in that study that about two thirds of the bears that they relocated, um, died attempting to get back to where they had been relocated from usually by, by via, via car mm-hmm. accident. So it endangers the bear itself. And then it also, uh, basically you're just moving the problem at that point right. to, to be somebody else's. And so that's why we try to preach, you know, kind of that ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know, if you can if you can eliminate those food sources, obviously not feed the bears on purpose, um, and and take those steps to mitigate them getting dependent on food sources, then you can eliminate those kind of things from happening before they even start. Yeah, and that's probably hard to convey to a lot of people in Mississippi because they're, I mean, like I've never seen a bear in Mississippi, so you know, and I'm 31, so. Most people have never seen a bear around here, so it's just such a big shock if you see one out in your backyard or something, if you live over in the Delta or whatever. But I guess it's just going to take a long time to, for people to get used to that, and the more and more bears there are, the more and more people finally just kind of accept them as part of the landscape. Right. Yeah. So as the bears are moving around and all, like around the state we're talking about, as they're, like I guess, recolonized from other places and all, 
It said that there were two types of subspecies of bears in Mississippi. Right. Yeah. Well, so are, the, are you see like are the bears on that we're kind of seeing in the southern counties of the state different than what we're seeing in the Delta River region, or how's it? How how are they kind of spread out? Or is it intermixed? Or so you, there's not actually a morphological like a, an appearance difference. Yeah. Um, you, there's skull measurements and and genetic data that you can pull to dif- differentiate. Um, you know, one subspecies from the other. Uh, so what you're talking about is the American black bear versus the Louisiana black bear. So it's Ursus Americanus versus Americanus luteolus. And there, the, the protections were for the um, Louisiana black bear, but like I said, it was just kind of statewide. As far as the map goes, you've got to draw the line somewhere. Obviously, that's not going to be a, a perfect line. Nothing in wildlife is right. you know, can you draw perfect lines with, but um, you just kind of – do the best you can on that but as far as the management goes as far as the you know the habitats and tendencies and that kind of thing it's you know black bears are black bears for the most part so will they will those two subspecies breed yeah i was like i'm sure people probably arguing whether they're really are two different things or they're the same thing i'm sure that all that argument's going on and yeah but i mean the biggest thing to remember is you know like i said they're both it's kind of like like i said i came from the the wild pig world yeah you have you know, sort of those domestic uh, ancestry that were introduced in the in the European explorers, like in the 1500s, and then you had some that were introduced a lot later as those Eurasian pigs, and um, you know, it's kind of like the the domestic dog versus the the wolf, sort of the analogy that I draw. Gotcha. But at the end of the day, they're all wild pigs. You manage them all the same, you know, and and there's certain degrees of hybridization in the population too. So it's just kind of all baked into the cake, really. Gotcha. So I know you probably have no idea the answer to this question, but you could guess. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> that's lead, a good lead yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you got but my – You, I you know. probably can't answer this, but here we go. But give it your best shot. Okay. So um, this has probably been five or six years ago now, but one of my good friends had a – he had probably five or six pictures of a bear in Meehan, which is, you know, just a couple of miles west of here. And then last year, uh, a hunting camp up in Kemper County just – 25 minutes north of where we're at right now had a bunch of pictures of a bear do you think there's actually bears living in this area or are those all just males passing through or do you have any guess on that at all so it's probably males either males passing through um but a lot of times even because an adult male is going to have a home range pretty much established and so you may not see that bear every day but you'll see it you know fairly fairly regularly if you've got game cameras out and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas a, you know, like we talked about before, if that's a juvenile male that's, that's trying to establish a home range and he's getting his behind whipped every time he gets into another adult's home range, he may go for miles and miles and, and pass through. I mean, you know, and he's also a juvenile, you know, so he mm-hmm. doesn't, he doesn't know to avoid people and things. And, and there's a lot of new experiences for him. So there's no telling where that bear could end up. We had a, um, one that was, I call it, it wasn't a fully adult male that uh, ended up in the center of Greenwood uh, back in, I think that was 2016. And um, we ended up going to get that one. But uh, it's, you know, they'll, that's probably the most common source mm-hmm. of, a, of a bear just randomly showing up one day and then you never see it again. Um, I would I would imagine that's probably the case. Um, and then, you know, the males will move a lot pursuing females during during breeding season as well. So again, that's in the summertime. So uh, it just kind of depends. But as far as a well-established population, 
Yeah, probably not. Yeah, they, I guess they probably come over here. The come over here looking during breeding season, and then realize there's no bears over here, and <laughs> head on back. Keep but, moving. Yeah, I can't, you know, it kind of seems like date. I was thinking about that. I was looking at y'all's like sighting map and all. Probably around that 2016, 2015 time range. I think it had to be somewhere around in there. That was a, there was a bear that came through the cab. It kind of like came. I think it came through Scuba. Came down Highway 16. People were seeing it kind of on both sides of the road, north and south, until they got to the cab. Kind of came right through the middle of town. People saw it a bunch of. I think it made the newspaper too, maybe. Right. Um. But yeah, I think it was like an all. I think it was a late summer, somewhere around in there, July August type time period. Yeah. Do we? We had one at our camp house that did that. It was August a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a lady uh, that's one of the couples that lived down there had like some home health people staying with them and they were switching out one day. They saw them right, like at the, right at the intersection, right at the corner of our place. That's all yeah. we've ever seen out there. Yeah. And well, and like you said, I mean, you know, bears being kind of a, like charismatic megafauna, you know, something that everybody gets excited about. It makes the paper. Oh, it gets, it gets people going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one bear can make a huge impression. Like everybody remembers it. Like mm-hmm. you were, you were calling something from you yeah, know, like, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive incredible how well it's kind of like the, the same reaction, thing with, you know. where we where we live like eagles still do the same thing like yeah, you know yeah. you go travel to other states and all where eagles are common like people don't even bat an eye at them you're just kind of get yeah we, we don't pay we still, still, and then here it's like oh my gosh look there's an eagle yeah we still get calls <laughs> Pull over there they are <laughs> we still get calls at the um at the office and people wanting to report bald eagles it's really like okay thanks but yeah. you know <laughs> we're not really it's 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 become a lot more commonplace yeah uh, the eagles have to but they'll uh, I guess hopefully the bears follow the place of the eagle because, I mean, I remember when around here that they put those eagles at Oak Tibby, mm-hmm. and it was like two of them. And, yeah, when you, if you went out there when we were kids and you saw those eagles, it was such a big deal. And, yeah, I mean, now you just see them everywhere. There's so I guess two at Kemper Lake that stay there pretty consistently There's now. a couple that stay at our camp house, just, I mean, year-round they're yeah. there. Yeah, but, and we have a couple uh, wildlife management areas. Twin Oaks is one. Like, there's there's one curve that you can always look up in these trees and usually see mm-hmm. at least one or two. Uh, have seen as many as three or four, you know, in, the, in that one little area. So it's definitely increasing. As far as coming over this way, do you see, even as the bear population grows, do you see it kind of staying in the delta, or or would it expand this way, or would it kind of just – continue to fill up the delta area and maybe go more into louisiana and arkansas and that delta but or would it do we have the habitat on this side of the state to actually support a bear population so part of the reason why the bears are dispersing from tensaw and and white river and those kind of highly populated areas into places like the south delta or the north delta what is because the density there is getting to a point where they have to disperse Mm -hmm. out and so, you know, your your center of your population is going to be where your where your good habitat is, and then as you expand out, you get into less desirable habitat. Otherwise, there would already be a habitat there. Yeah. I mean, a, um, a population, population there. And so, um, sort of a mixture of both. Probably, you're always going to have a high density of of bears in in habitat where it's uh, conducive for them to be there. Um, but like I said, bears are also very adaptable, and so you know, you could definitely. We, we have, and I would expect to continue to see uh, a spread into new areas where it's maybe not be quite as great, but it's still perfectly good for a bear to, you know, to be a bear. Mm-hmm. And so you'll, you'll continue to see, you know, bears in areas where uh, you typically haven't in, in, the, in the 
historically, I guess. We kind of skipped this, I guess, earlier. I know we were talking about the habitat and all, but since you're talking about that right now and dispersal and all, like, are we bottomland hardwood? I'm guessing it's like they're they're kind of following rivers, creeks, bottomland hardwood areas. That's kind of what they're looking for. Yeah, for two reasons. Number one, because it's it's the best habitat. Bottomland hardwood is kind of what they seek out, uh, but also. You know, in a lot of areas of the state, that's the only that's like the major wildlife corridor mm-hmm. that exists is, right. is those kind of, you know, you can't really develop them. There's not much you can do with them when you have, you know, poorly drained soil and, and river yep. bottoms and, and those kind of lower parts of the watershed. And so, you know, they use those number one as desirable habitat, but, but then it's also a good corridor to to kind of move from one place to the next as well. Yeah, it kind of surprises me which I guess it's just so far or just kind of isolated, but it kind of surprises me there's not a population like on the Tom Bibby, like up in the Black Belt Prairie where it's kind of the same, you know, same habitat as the Delta, but I guess it's just kind of isolated there is why there's not really, yeah. I'm guessing that there's not really a population. I've never heard of it. Yeah, but I mean, but you look at the, um, you know, the populations, the, the densities up in Tennessee, you know, eastern Tennessee, and then you look at um, there's actually a, a population that I, I don't know the exact like status like how well it's growing I I don't think it's doing quite as well um, I remember there being two in in Alabama one's growing pretty well and one's not one's in the Mobile Basin and then one's kind of in the northeast right there or excuse mm-hmm. me northwest um, and so you know if that population kind of takes hold and starts to grow then you're going to start seeing dispersal over probably into north north yeah. east Mississippi as well. Also, I didn't look. I was going to ask that. I didn't, I didn't look really into Alabama that much, but that's what I was. I was wondering that on like that east side of Mississippi, if we were kind of seeing them coming off like Tom Bibby River. Like, was that kind of like a corridor that they were? I knew down around like uh, I guess like the Mobile River Basin and all was um, somewhere they were kind of coming from. Yeah. Is that like where we are, east central Mississippi, like bears we're seeing, is that most likely ours are kind of crossing from Alabama or are we getting stuff kind of coming all the way across central Mississippi, you think? And you may, um, not, be, you may not be able to answer that at all. Well, I mean, so if you if you look at like the southern, you know, southeast Mississippi and then southwest Alabama, kind mm-hmm. of those boot, yep. boot hills that come yep. together right there, if you kind of erase those, those lines right there but then sort of draw a big circle around the Mobile Basin. Yep. It, you really can see sort of a progression where it's it's really dense in the southern part, and then as you go north, it gets more and more sparse. Yep. And then the same thing with the western part of the state. And so, you know, whether they're coming from Alabama or Mississippi, as far as a bear concerned, ours are kind of coming out of that. Yeah, just out kind of, of a, this southern population that's yeah. kind of working its way up. That would be, and that's another reason um, we're actually, you know, we talked a lot about the collaring and and yeah. you know, the the movement data, but we're also in in some properties that we have less um, less dense populations, where you just have a, a transient bear every now and then, we're also trying to collect genetic data. So what we'll do is we'll put um, uh, barbed wire, a few strands of barbed wire around, and then um, a, a, usually a donut right there in the middle. And what that what that does is when a bear comes in, their hair snags on that barbed wire. Mm-hmm. It leaves a tuft of hair, and then we do use that to to get genetic data. And you know, as as well as genetic uh, research has has progressed and improved, we can really tell a lot from those um, from that information as well. Especially in ha- in populations that aren't as well established and we don't know as much about. Mm-hmm. 
like questions you asked, where exactly did this bear come from in relationship to where the hotspots are? Right. That's stuff that we can kind of start to put those puzzle pieces together once we get more genetic data, especially in the southeastern part of the state. And I sort of a plug for myself. Um, what we're tr- one of the things we're trying to do right now is get properties in those areas um, to give us permission to go down there and do and do trapping. And so, if there are any listeners down that area, uh, really in the southwestern or southeastern part of the state, that's kind of where we're trying to to focus on. And so, you know, if you got a fairly good sized property where you see bears a pretty good bit, you wouldn't mind us coming to trap. You can. I'd like to get in me. there and get some get some collars on something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I didn't think about the popula- that population being that high in the southern part of the state. I mean, you always think about the Delta, but down there in like Jackson County and stuff, I mean, that map shows a ton of sightings. So, yeah. I was wondering, that was, uh, that makes sense what you just said. And, you know, hopefully somebody hearing this will be able to, to connect y'all with somebody to do that. But it sounded like most of the information that we were getting was all coming out of the Delta, but that's where you have access permission, getting trapped, and it got. Bears with collars, so yeah, and we've so got, we're just looking to get more into the South Mississippi where we can find out more, right? Yeah, and, and that's that's been you know our our bear biologists have been um, kind of located in the Jackson area, and so you know Vicksburg is an hour versus right. the coast is three, right? So the logistics of that is just a lot easier, and you know that's one of the oldest, most well established populations in the state is right there in that South Delta area. And, you know, there's, there's been bear there's for, there have been bears there for you know, decades now. And so we've got all kinds of data in that area. And that's kind of what we're trying to do is progress into places like Wilkinson County, for mm-hmm. instance, that, and, uh, you know, those coastal counties that don't have, you know, may have, may have had very few, if any collared bears or, or you know, um, genetic information and stuff that have come out of those areas. That That's kind of what we're trying to reach our hands into and start to tease out some of those details and, and learn about those subpopulations because, you know, the chances are they're pretty genetically different from the, all the other ones that we've been researching so far. So I guess you know, while we're talking about that observation map, I mean, kind of give a, if somebody sees a bear, like what, I guess not really a benefit, but like how much does that help y'all if they actually report the sighting of that bear on there? Yeah, so... Back in 2016 was when the the bear observation report was was established, and so you would click on the link on the website uh, under the mdwfp.com, and then you go to bear program, and then report an observation. So you report things like the position. There's a, an option to upload a picture and all that kind of stuff. It, it's basically as many details as you as you have you can put in mm-hmm. there. Um, and the, that kind of you know I could view those pictures. I could look at those locations but it wasn't something that was available to the public. And so one of the things that we kind of wanted to put out there sort of while we had everybody's attention during bear week was, you know, to, to allow the public to, to kind of share that and say, you know, here's where the sightings have been. And I was shocked at how many reports we had and how many calls and emails that I got saying, Hey, I see, I saw a bear here or there. And it may have been two years ago. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, something that we could use right yeah. now, <laughs> but but the response from it was was pretty incredible, and so again, that's just one of the another you know avenue that we can use to kind of connect all those puzzle pieces and, and start to put things together. Um, and it's it's crazy. We have a map, uh, an older map. I think it's still on the website. It's from um, I think like 2012 or 13 to 17, and it mirrors that one almost perfectly. And so you know, while those are public observations, and some of them may have been big black labs that cross the road mm-hmm. instead of a bear. 
uh, it still gives a really good representation of, you know, what's been seen and, and kind of the, the hot spots around the state. Yeah. And I guess all it can do is help. I mean, if people report them to y'all, I mean, all it does is, yeah, it's helpful. Can I mention so. that I also love the icon y'all use on there? He's like sitting <laughs> on his back waving almost. Man, I kind of, I kind of, <laughs> like I've gone back and forth and there's, there was some folks back at the office that were like, what is that? Yeah. What are you thinking? That's what I saw. But, like, he needs like a honey pot on his knee since he's yeah, just sitting there yeah. waving. Yeah, it was kind of one of those things like where you don't want to make it too cartoonish. And yeah. I was like, I kind of went back and forth. I still might change it, but well, you also no, I, you don't want it to be too scientific either. I mean, yeah, I know. No, I like liked it when I saw it. I was like, that's that's a good one. It's well, kind of like, hey, I'm here. You saw me. Well, one thing's for sure it, it has a lot more um, it has a lot more reaction than just dots. Or yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I like it. How you got it. Well, yeah. So I had um, the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on was just the goals of the program going forward you kind of answered that with how you know we'd like to see it as a game species again but besides that I mean I guess that's probably the main overarching goal but is there any other kind of goals that y'all are hoping for in the near future or a long way out or yeah well I mean you know the immediate goals are basically twofold and number one that's to compile as much data as we can you know essentially do an inventory of what we have where the bears are, how many, the, and start to answer those sorts of questions. Uh, but then also, you know, we also want to create a big push to educate the public on how to live with bears because as those numbers increase, uh, there's there are practically no areas in Mississippi. There, there are a handful that are used to thinking about routinely having bears, mm-hmm. at least in the proximity, and then what steps to take to avoid conflict. And, you know, the more we can get that out to people – um, like I said, those simple steps, it, it almost, almost all of it revolves around food at some point or another. Yeah. And so, you know, the more that you can deny those, those, um, possibilities of, of interactions and conflict, the better off the bears and the people are going to be. And so that's, that's another really big push that we're trying to put out is, you know, starting to think about that and making those adjustments, um, of that, you know, people that, that grow fruit. They'll put nets over their trees mm-hmm. to, to, to keep the birds away, you know, and that's if, if you never had birds and then all of a sudden birds showed up, you know, yeah. like fruit eating birds right. showed up, it would be something that's like, oh, I never thought about that until now. It, it's kind of that same thing where more and more people have to sort of catch on to, you know, just just those things that you do to negate um, any kind of conflict like that. Yeah, and I bet because I only think pot like when I think a growing bear population, I can only think positive, but I guess there is people out there that are against it or, or don't like the idea. I guess, you know, I started thinking about when you said people that grow fruit trees or stuff like that. I mean that, you know, kind of like the hogs in the ag fields. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Uh, the beekeepers are not big fans of the bears oh, yeah, for sure. I've already gotten several calls and, uh, you know, there's electric fences are the, are the best thing by far to to protect that because they're almost 100 percent effective mm-hmm. and you know once a bear gets popped the first time that's that's pretty much the end mm-hmm. of it and so you know the good thing is they're they're intelligent and they're they're very trainable and so you can take steps to to sort of train them to avoid people and to avoid uh those type of sources but you know they have to they have to have a negative interaction around those things rather than a positive mm-hmm. one. yeah austin you uh you got anything else on your mind, or yeah, I got a couple couple other things I want to ask about. Um, one, uh, well, just like for people that are interested in, like you know, following along or 
uh, being involved in anything with Bear Mississippi. I know from some of the stuff I've looked at before, like bearwise.org seems to be something that y'all kind of promote. It's a Southeast yes. uh, yep. organization. Uh, but then, like, looking around on y'all's website, like, there's some Mississippi, like Mississippi Bear Education Restoration Group. Is that stuff that y'all are involved in that y'all, like, steer people toward, I guess? if Yeah, and so, you know, there are some people that would just kind of look on a cursory level at this kind of stuff, and there's some people that really want to know more about it. And, and those additional resources there are are things like the bearwise.org that has more information than most people would care to read about, yeah. you know, way more into detail about what we than, than what we could talk about here. Well, I guess that was what, like the Mississippi one, I guess, is really more so the one I was asking about just because people tend to be more interested in like if it's something specific here. I, I mean, people can be listening to this from anywhere, but I'm thinking – we're talking about the state. Right. People within the state are usually more interested in something that's going on in the state. So, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely good resources. Okay. Definitely something that we we steer people to. And you know, like I said, the, the more cooperation you can get with different entities that are all sort of coming together and, and preaching the same message, the more effective in, that it's all going to be. And and you know, this podcast is a part of that just as much as you know some of these other organizations because we're all trying to get that message out together through as many avenues as possible. So. Yeah, that's all. Uh, when what really piqued my interest on them when I saw it was that they were in Rolling Fork. So yeah, uh, I know Rolling Fork's been top of the news for, for. If you're not, you know, we just had some real bad weather come through there and, and really devastate Rolling Fork. So for anybody listening that hadn't heard that, it happened a couple of weeks ago. So um, yeah, that that kind of popped out to me whenever I was looking through there, and then I was thinking bears in that area too. I was like, that's kind of when you look at the sighting maps and all that area of the Delta. Well, it's probably mainly too. Only the majority of people that would be interested in the Mississippi bear population are people from Mississippi, just because black bears are so common in the United States. I mean, you know, people probably don't think about. Well, there's actually populations that are really struggling because it seems like there's black bears everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I'm going uh, going turkey hunting next week in in North Georgia, and that's. Everything about the WMA says, you know, high black bear population, plan on seeing black bears. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I guess it's just uh, nobody really thinks about that that this population has been doing how it's been doing or, or what it is doing or, how you know, how you could possibly help with it. Yeah. Well, and one thing that kind of stuck out to me on just kind of reading through the Facebook comments and stuff on, on a lot of those posts during the Bear Week stuff that we did uh, was how many people that went were just like, we have bears in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like I said, I'm 31 and I spend a lot of time outside and in the woods and I've never seen one. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, unless you go to certain parts of the state where they're very common, mm-hmm. there's very low likelihood that you would even see one, you know? And so, um, you look at, you know, we have six, nine, almost 10 years of, um, worth of data on that, um, observation report there. And, you know, the majority of the counties have no sightings or, mm-hmm. or just a handful, you know, and, and that's over that time period over that whole county. And um, so it's really, you know, it, it's, it's not as, it's not as much as you would think just looking at that, at that observation report there. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe next year, uh, since we, I mean, that's what really got us interested in it was bear week for this year. Maybe next year we can be proactive about it and maybe catch you beforehand and see. I've got a lot of stuff coming for bear, for bear week next year. Well, I was like, maybe, we, maybe we can catch you leading into it next yeah. year, next year. And then that way we can, uh, find out if you got your 12 callers on, on 12 more bears and, 
Yep. Did you get into South Mississippi and what else What else has been going on? Yeah, well, definitely. I'll uh, look forward to it. That'll be a lot of fun. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Austin, if you don't have anything else. No, I think I'm good. I've really enjoyed that. Man, thanks, I enjoyed yeah, it too. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming Anthony, on we us. appreciate yeah. it. If somebody wants to uh, follow along more, that's what's the Instagram handle? that Do you know that off the top of your head? Yeah, it's uh, Instagram is MDWFP online. Okay, so you can go back and look uh, at all they had for Bear Week. They put all kind of stuff out and on Facebook too. So yeah. And like we always say, if you'll follow us and write us a review and let us know what you think, we'd sure appreciate it. But, Anthony, again, thanks for coming on, man. We appreciate it. No problem. Enjoyed it.